And Lord, we don't know the details of that uh, incident that Connie just prayed about, but you do, and we leave it in your hands because we trust in your sovereign hand. We don't know if he's a believer or whether he needs to uh, reconnect with you, but we leave him in your hands asking that you would work and use the circumstance to draw him to yourself. Thank you this morning that we finally got connected and that we are able to uh, get into your word and maybe there's a reason perhaps the enemy doesn't want us to discuss these uh, important issues that deal with primarily you and your dealings with mankind. So we desire that you would in fact use the time that we have and that you would uh, illumine our minds to think clearly Think biblically, be consistent with what you have revealed in your word, and we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Romans, we're looking at chapters 9 through 11, a difficult passage. In fact, all of Romans 9 has lots of elements in it that are difficult. One of the issues is the justice of God that Paul has already raised And in verses 19 through 24, you could even give it the same title, even though I've broken that as a separate paragraph. But it's an extension of the discussion he started uh, earlier on God's justice. And when we talk about the issue of election, that's part of what our human, limited, finite understanding Our minds tend to think in terms of why does God choose some and leave some others out? So he's answering that question in relationship to the nation of Israel, because that's the the main issue that he's dealing with. And he's writing to believers in the city of Rome, as we've said over and over. He's writing to believers. In other words, Jewish people. He spent the bulk of the book dealing with uh, the Gentile believers, but now he's answering an issue that would pop up. I gave you kind of a long review last time, so I'm going to try and quicken this one to get into the text sooner. In verses 1 through 8, it deals with humanity in general. In other words, the believer that needs God's righteousness in general, Jew and Gentile, its provision for Jew and Gentile, raises the issue in 9 through 11. What about all of the promises, the covenants that God has made with the nation of Israel? And it seems like he set them aside as a nation, and that is true. So he's going to answer that in 9 through 11, going back to their even their origins where God sovereignly chose some, even within the descendants of Abraham, That's the basis for him now arguing so God is free to be able to choose anyone. He can choose Gentiles if he so desires. And he's going to explain that Israel is right now under discipline and there's a new program essentially for Jew and Gentile. He doesn't use the word church, but he's in some passages referring to this new entity. And in the meantime, Israel is under discipline and essentially rejected So 9, 1 through 29, what I mean there is Israel's choice by God, not Israel's choice of God, God choosing Israel. And because of rejecting the Messiah, God has rejected them and they're under discipline, but they 
have a future restoration. So we'll eventually get to those passages. So that brings us to some of the issues that the Jew would raise in his thinking. And Paul probably encountered fellow Jews because he refers to them often, fellow brothers. And in this context of chapter 9, when he refers to brothers, he's referring to brothers in Judaism, not brothers in Christ, although it would be applicable to both if they are believers. The gospel is going to the Gentiles, so that raises all the issues of the covenants and the promises and God's election of the nation of Israel. It seems to be inconsistent with some of the things, or at least their distorted understanding of the Old Testament. Concerning Israel as God's chosen people, have they lost that? And I don't see anything in 9 through 11 that says that they are no longer the chosen people, but they are set aside. They are under discipline. And uh, we've already seen some of that in what we've already talked about. So Gentiles coming to God and another major thing, apart from the law, that would be unheard of amongst Jewish people because of their devotion to it but also their perverted view concerning what the law can do. The law cannot save, even in the Old Testament, the law was not intended to save, and certainly not amongst Gentiles. So he's answering all these major issues. So we've been looking at the vindication of God's righteousness, that past sovereign election of Israel, And if God can choose Israel and also set them aside, then certainly God can choose Gentiles. That's what he's going to get to when we get to verse 24 in this same paragraph. He begins by indicating his sorrow. He actually vindicates it. He vindicates God's word beginning in verse 6 through 13. And that leads him to a discussion. It just doesn't seem to be right. There seems to be something wrong with this. So he has to vindicate God's justice, 14 through 18. He spent most of our time in verse 18 last time. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he hardens. But first, we spent a lot of time in in the book of Exodus looking at the context of that passage And there are several things that we brought out that are not immediately evident in 17 and 18 when we have the word that is given to Moses. And in uh, chapter 33 is where the, uh, the passage comes out of, but it's in the same context of 32. And 32 is the incident of the golden calf, particularly the uh, historical event one through eight. But in the context, God announces because of the violation of the covenant, Israel should, in fact, receive the wrath of God. And he says that he's going to wipe them out. He's talking to Moses. Now, he's indicating these things because Moses, obviously, is God's instrument. And he is bringing to Moses' memory the covenants, the promises, and all the issues relating to Israel and God. And he phrases this way to bring to the surface what he has already revealed, not because he's changed his mind. And he's indicating in that passage that God would be perfectly just if he wiped out all of the nation of Israel. And he could start over, if he so desired, and raise up a whole nation through Moses. But Moses, knowing the word, knowing God, knowing the scriptures, 
intercedes on behalf, on the basis of the character and nature of God, intercedes on behalf of Israel, and uh, God lifts the wrath, and he introduces instead of wrath, and we have confirmation of that by Moses delivering this message to the children of Israel, but this request to see, see God, and God's going to reveal his glory, and we're going to learn something of other aspects of God. God's glory includes mercy and grace. In fact, the passage indicates grace as well. So God is revealing mercy to the children of Israel. He is perfectly righteous in rejecting and judging and pouring out wrath upon them and essentially starting over. So he shows mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And he gives a second example, the hardening of Pharaoh. And in that context, there's several things that's a, probably one of the most difficult passages in all the New Testament and certainly one of the most in the book of Romans. God announces what he's going to do. In other words, God makes clear his plan and he, he announces that he's going to involve himself in the Egyptians and particularly Pharaoh and he predicts the outcome essentially and the outcome is going to be judgment upon Pharaoh for hardening and in fact it's phrased in such a way that God is involved in the hardening so that presents lots of problems and we saw and I tried to emphasize you have to go back to chapter one to get the context and in chapter one the context of the whole book all of humanity is under wrath all of humanity has received a revelation from God And God is perfectly righteous in rejecting and condemning all of humanity. All of humanity is deserving of the wrath of God. In fact, it's phrased in the present tense. The wrath of God is revealed, not solely had been revealed in the Old Testament and not even referring to the future wrath. But in in, uh, Romans 1, he's talking about present wrath. In fact, I think that theme runs throughout the book of Romans, present wrath. So wrath is deserved because God has adequately revealed himself, Romans 1, to all humanity. Man has rejected that revelation. Remember, I walked you through the sequence there. And because of that rejection, that begins the hardening process of within all of humanity, all of mankind. And unless God intervenes to convict and to illumine and to bring a person to a realization that Christ is the only way, that process will continue and it'll work itself out to a point like what we have in the book of Exodus in the case of Pharaoh and what uh, Paul is referring to in the book of Romans. He's referring back to the hardening. So, I stressed, and we looked at a couple of these passages, there's adequate revelation that Pharaoh had. Not only did Pharaoh have the revelation of miraculous works of God ten times, and in the process of God revealing his work in terms of the plagues, but these are examples of direct speaking to Pharaoh through Moses, 
announcing, in other words, revealing God and revealing what God desires and revealing what God is going to do. So Pharaoh has had adequate revelation. And then we said the hardening basically continues in in terms of Pharaoh actively acting out the choices he has already made even before God's involvement. And then we have some references in the passive indicating that perhaps we have a transition from Pharaoh hardening his own heart and Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And you could view the process of hardening that's just the natural course of depravity. That's what we've been talking about. And then we have the direct statements beginning with the prediction in 421 and then the working out of God's involvement. And from Romans 1, it's that last process. It's the pouring out of wrath. In other words, it's a present tense sense of wrath where God rejects not only humanity in general, Romans 1, but uh, he allows. In other words, the wrath of God is revealed in a present tense sense in that God permits the unbeliever to experience not only the consequences of those choices and that sin, but allows it to work itself out into all kinds of perversions. And that's what you have at the end of Romans 1, God giving them up, stated three times. So in the book of Exodus, we are seeing the last stages in terms of Pharaoh. And when it says in uh, 18, he hardens whom he desires, this is after all of the long process that we looked at in Romans 1 and our evident even in the Exodus passage. So that leads to the next question. If God hardens Pharaoh, how can he hold man responsible? Well, if you understand what's happening, the question goes away, but he's going to add to this because he knows that this question sometimes doesn't so easily let loose of our thinking. And now in another long paragraph from 19 to 29, he's going to explain that God is absolutely sovereign. So he's going to vindicate God's sovereignty. And in reality, this is an extension of the discussion concerning the justice of God. And we started last time by looking at human responsibility, which is stated essentially in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? And then we have another question for who resists his will. And last time I introduced to you towards the end of our class, we have six questions that Paul asks. In other words, he frames not only the initial issue of human responsibility that we have clearly in verse 19, but uh, he's going to frame the answers to begin with in the form of questions, and there's going to be six of them altogether. I gave you an overview of all six. We have the first one here, the responsibility concerning the responsibility of man. If God hardens, how can God hold man responsible? Well, you have to take a step back and take into account the whole process of hardening. And I also gave you a little indication that the word hardening, that's not the only meaning involved in that passage. In fact, the word, when it's used outside of the the context of the plagues, it it even has positive meaning meanings in terms of encouraging and strengthening. But in terms of God, I think God is, you might say, reinforcing what Pharaoh has already 
determined himself and Pharaoh is fully responsible, even though we have the objection concerning that here. Pharaoh is fully responsible for the choices he has made and God is simply allowing the outworking and in a sense you could view that as God involved in the hardening and God abandoning, you might say, Pharaoh to his own choices and the consequences of those in terms of the will of God. So we have the first objection in verse 19. Why does he still find fault? Then he adds to that with a second question, for who resists his will? As if, and here's the problem that some we may have, and particularly if you're just looking at the surface here, you might think, well, Pharaoh, God has locked him in and God is not giving him a chance. But in reality, he's going to expand a little bit upon this, particularly when we get to verse, I think it's 23. We may not get that far today, but it talks about God even giving, in fact, Not clearly, but I believe God gave mercy to Pharaoh as well, not just to the children of Israel, in that he is long-suffering. In other words, God lets the process work out, giving plenty of opportunity. There's 10 plagues. After each one of those plagues, Pharaoh could have changed. In fact, he does change and then changes back. So it's not like God has locked Pharaoh in where Pharaoh has no option and cannot resist his will. So the question that's asked here for who resists his will, even though it it will be natural in our limited and human thinking, Paul is going to proceed in verse 20 to answer that question. So we have the objection concerning responsibility, then the objection concerning God's control, In fact, transitioning into God's sovereignty. So now in 20 and 21, he's going to use an illustration to indicate or to teach this concept of the sovereignty of God by using an illustration that would be very common, not only in the first century, but I think we can understand it even today because we still have the product of potters. Verse 20. Paul begins by beginning to contrast the question and, in fact, uh, refuting it. On the contrary, so from here on out, he's going to refute it, but his refutation will begin with a series of other questions that essentially refute the first two questions of the objection that pops up in our minds. So by refuting it, now he's going to move to the concept of a potter. But before we get to the the thing molded, we'll say to the molder, it's an allusion to the illustration that will be clearer in the following passage. So he's refuting uh, with a little phrase on the contrary, but now he even goes to the extent of saying, The clay has no right to even question. And he's going to get into the difference between the finiteness of mankind and the the sovereignty and the greatness and the glory of God. So in verse 20, he answers almost as if he's not going to answer, but eventually he does get to an answer as you move through the passage. But he starts off by 
taking a great offensive, you might say, stand, and he says, who are you, O man? In other words, what rights do you have? You're the creature. You're, you're simply dirt. You're the clay. And who are you? So he's going to contrast mankind with God. And mankind even does not have the right to even question God, much less receive an answer. So that's the starting point. Now, Paul, I'll tell you ahead of time, Paul is going to answer it. But first, he has to put man in his proper position. So the question now, who answers back to God? Who are you, the creature, who is so far away, so limited, so tiny? In fact, Isaiah gives us an image in Isaiah 40 of all of the nations. They're like a speck of dust in comparison to God. And he goes on to say, even less, they're less than that. They're less than nothing. How can less than nothing answer back to the creator of the entire universe? That's kind of the idea that Paul is portraying here. Who answers back to God? So we have another question that uh, refutes not only man's right to ask the question, but he's refuting an attitude of rebellion in man. In other words, man as sinner, as rebellious, dares to even ask the question. And man does not even from the start have even the right to question God because of the, the vast difference between the creator and the creation. And God has no obligation to man in any way whatsoever. So this is essentially how he answers it. And then he goes into the illustration, the thing molded. Here's the next question. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? In other words, the obvious answer here, not only the first question, but the implication is, The thing molded uh, has not only no right, but should not even have any capability of answering the one that molds or the, the, the creator. The right to question God, this is what he's refuting by these counter questions that he asks. He's also refuting God has no obligation to even give an answer. So now he moves into the, the illustration of the potter and question, why did you make me like this? And not only does he refutes a, a attitude in man, a prideful attitude, a elevating attitude in man, an attitude of rebellion, he not only questions man's right to even question God, and he also is refuting the idea that God has any obligation to mankind at all. And he's refuting man's limited knowledge. You you don't know anything about what God has other than what God has been pleased to reveal. So your knowledge is limited because you as man are finite. And in fact, the question even implies man judging God, questioning God's judgment. That in itself is man judging God. And who is man That's why he says, who are you, O man? 
to even bring judgment on God. You are limited in knowledge. God has no obligation to answer you. You have no right to question him. And all it does is reveal an attitude of rebellion. And not only that, but it reveals a misunderstanding of a fundamental biblical concept of the distinction between the creator and the creation. That distinction is so vast and so different that man has no no right to even answer. Did you get all the six of them? Everybody get those? Yes. So Paul, very offensive. In other words, taking the offensive, but in fact is bringing out by these questions not only man's limitedness, man's finiteness, man's misunderstanding, but uh, some of the underlying attitudes that elicits these questions to begin with. So he starts off by not answering the question, but uh, he will move on and eventually he does move into giving an answer. But we can draw another principle, the eighth that we've been developing here in chapter nine concerning the election of God. I think this passage, because he's answering the issue of man's responsibility, indicates to us that in the whole process, including the process of hardening, in the process of dealing with the nation of Israel, God works the whole process without violating man's will and without removing man's responsibility. So man's volition is not overridden or destroyed or violated in any way. And because that is the case, so also man is fully responsible for all of the choices that he's made. And in this context, immediately following the reference to Pharaoh, Pharaoh is kind of the prime example in terms of all of humanity that Paul had already developed in Romans chapter 1. So 19 through 22, he's going to build upon it. We just looked at 19 and 20 so far. Does not violate or remove man's responsibility. Fundamental principle in relationship to the concept of God's choosing. So in verse 21, or does not the potter have a right over the clay? Now he's going to give the answer. And fundamentally, the answer, just like a potter has absolute sovereignty, you might say, or authority to do with the dirt, whatever he so desires, the clay, the potter has every right. So he's asking it and framing it in a question, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump, the same depraved humanity, the same, well, I'll get into this in a moment, the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use, Notice it's framed as a question and the obvious answer, yes, God does in fact have right over the clay. And what he's going to do, remember he's speaking to a a Jewish audience, so now he's going to refute it using the illustration of a potter and the illustration is to bring out the rights of a potter and ultimately the sovereignty of the potter. So we have a fifth question, but it's part of the refutation of the objection 
or the two objections that we have in the two questions of objections in verse 19. So remember, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And why don't we look up these passages and this will give us a little of the context because again, unless you have a context of a passage, oftentimes you can um, misuse them and not understand what the point that Paul is making. We saw it was crucial to understand uh, the Exodus passage in terms of Moses, in terms of understand the concept of mercy and compassion. And it was also important to look at the context concerning Pharaoh to understand the meaning and the concept of God's hardening of Pharaoh. On the surface, it looks unfair and it looks like it's, there's something wrong with it. But in the, in the proper context, I think you can understand it. Similarly, we're going to see this concept of the potter. Somebody read, can somebody read, uh, Isaiah 29, 15 and 16? And why don't we skip verse 45? But the image is very similar. Somebody got that one, 15 and 16, Isaiah 29, similar context, similar imagery, you might say. Somebody, I can read that if you want. Go ahead. Somebody also look up, in fact, all of you, why don't all of you look up uh, Jeremiah while uh, uh, I didn't quite. Connie. Connie. Okay, go ahead and read Isaiah 29 for us. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely, and then 16 says, surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Or shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Okay. Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Uh, 15 gives you a little bit of the context. And then 16, we have the imagery. We won't look up 45.9 in Isaiah, but it is similar. In fact, it uses the same illustration. But notice Jeremiah also, and keep in mind the context of both Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah prophesies early before the fall of the northern kingdom, but eventually the northern kingdom will fall and eventually the southern kingdom of Israel And in the context of the disintegration of the nation of Israel, that's the context of Isaiah 29. And and Jeremiah is later, further down the road, parts of Jeremiah were written after some of the exile had already taken place. So the destruction of the nation was already in the process. And uh, Jeremiah is one of the exiles. So part of it is during the exile, and some of Jeremiah is before. But he uses another image. But let's start reading in Jeremiah 18. Who wants to start? Somebody else, verse 1 and 2. Okay, Linda. 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Okay, so that kind of sets sets the image of the potter. Keep reading. Read, read 3 and 4. Now, Linda, go ahead. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. Okay. Oh. Now, notice he's using the same clay. He's reshaping it. The, the clay... 
It's an image of depravity. In other words, the clay is spoiled, but yet he is going to remake it, reshape it. He's going to intervene in the clay. Would somebody else care to read beginning in verse 5, 5 through 7? I'll go ahead. Go ahead. Then the word of the Lord, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this declared the Lord, like clay in your silver hand, O house of Israel, if at any time I am that a nation or kingdom is be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I born prince of its evil, then I will relent and not upon it the disaster I Okay, did everybody get that? That was a little uh, kind of fuzzy. Your your microphone was not as clear. Let me bring out what uh, you just read. Notice a couple of things. He's talking about Israel and the soon destruction. But notice even late in their history, he's using the illustration of the potter having absolute sovereignty to do whatever he so desires. Now, the context is the nation, so we don't want to lose sight of that. The context is similar for Paul. He's talking about the nation of Israel, so there's there's a corporate idea here. But notice, and, and it's God's people. He's dealing with God's people. He's not dealing with the, with the unbelievers here. He's dealing with the, the, the people that he identifies as his own. But God is going to discipline. God's going to judge them. And... There's opportunity even late if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil. In other words, there's opportunity to change course, to exercise volition, to in fact repent, even at this late date in this imagery. And this is an illustration of what he's going to develop later on, the long suffering of the Lord. So back to the Romans passage, if you turn back to the Romans passage, This is the context. I think the imagery to a Jewish audience would come from Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jewish people would be familiar with both those passages, and they would be familiar with the context. And now that we have the context, this passage is bringing out that God has absolute authority just like a potter. And he can do with the the clay, but also in the context, Paul hints that this clay is damaged, like it says in Jeremiah. In other words, it's depraved. God could cast it out if he so desired, but he chooses to continue to work. And he is going to work with absolute sovereignty. In fact, notice it says the potter has a right. That could be translated as the authority, has the sovereign authority over the clay. It's a word that is normally translated authority in other contexts. And then it goes on to make from the same lump, the same depraved clay, the same clay that has no hope, the same clay that has no ability to to change its condition, totally condemned. And in this context in Romans, he's going to expand from the same lump to categories. In other words, he's going to deal with uh, the same lump in terms of Israel that he will bestow mercy. And in fact, uh, the next passage, the same lump, all are depraved to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use. 
and then the last part and another for common use. So essentially, using the same illustration, it was not uncommon in uh, Old Testament time where the illustration originates, but it was very common in the New Testament for a potter to take a vessel, and out of this vessel he could create a work of art, add detail to it, and make it uh, stand out so it's part of the beauty, for example, a flower pot that would enhance the beauty of the flower. That would be a vessel for honorable use out of the same clay. So God is sovereign like a potter, and he can take that that is ruined, that that is depraved, that that has no ability in itself, and create something of beauty. And that's what he does. And he's going to do that with the nation of Israel. And that's what he does with every, I think, every uh, unbeliever from the same lump. He can create whatever he so desires. And then the alternative and another for common use. And this illustration looks at a potter that will create. In this case, it kind of illustrates like a mass production of vessels. Very common, no artwork, just uh, the same vessel that's used that to be put on a market for common use. In other words, mass distribution. In those days, potters would uh, make uh, many, many pots because that's how they made a living. And they would sell the pot, make it over and over and over. Same thing, over. It's common. And its use is everyday usage. But if he so desired, he could take from that same lump and make something of a piece of art. And that's the point that he's making here. So he can take from the same lump of Jew and Gentile, and he can make one a vessel of beauty, and he can take another that is, in the everyday sense, just common usage, because he is sovereign. And in Jeremiah 18, we saw in verses 6 through 10, we didn't read the last part, but it basically expands the context is Israel as a nation in this context, okay? So from that passage, we can add to our list here, God is absolutely free and absolutely sovereign to do with his creation as he sees fit. And in fact, mankind to begin with doesn't even have the right to question that uh, sovereignty and uh, that Distinction between the creator and the creation. Somebody on the verge of asking something? Uh, I just wanted to make a comment that at the end of that passage, it says that... Uh, which which passage? The Jeremiah? Yeah. At the very end, uh, verse 10, If yep. that nation or kingdom does evil um, in my sight so that it does not obey my voice... Then I will relent concerning the good. Yes. I wish I would benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some sobering, strong statements where the imagery comes from. And, uh, Jewish people would, would, uh, remember. And if not, they could, uh, easily, uh, look up those passages to get the full context of them. Paul just gives us the gist of it by giving us an illustration. Good comment there. So God is absolutely free and sovereign and does not even have to answer man's objection because he's like the potter. And that 
is going to be expanded, and you might even say applied in the context of what he's already developed in the earlier verses, and that sovereignty is going to be displayed. In fact, there's a plan back to what we've been talking about all along. God has a bigger plan, bits and pieces he's revealed to us, but there are aspects of that plan that no one even knew before the coming of Messiah. The church is a mystery. This whole new uh, time frame, uh, the age of of grace, the age of the church is unknown. It's a mystery, unknown in the Old Testament. So there are aspects of this big plan that God has. Now he's revealing that it's on display in the way that he's going to deal with the nation of Israel and also in dealing with Gentile people as well. So he's going to add to uh, the answer by framing one more question, the sixth one. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Notice it ends with a question, and it's framed such that the the implied answer is... And by the way, the grammar here is a little difficult because it it introduces a condition but never gives uh, if God it never gives the then part of uh, of the statement. It just simply gives if God is willing and then it leaves it hanging. So we have a, a little bit of a difficult in the Greek grammar. So he's going to refute with a sixth question, just like the potter is sovereign over the clay. The illustration now is God is sovereign over mankind, verse 22. So he's going to give a further, you might say a a second major answer, and essentially begin to, to make more clear the answer, even though he begins by giving an answer that man has no right to even question and God has no, no, uh, obligation to answer. So now, with the, the second answer, with the difficult uh, grammar here, it's going to talk about God's will. And you can add a tenth principle that God's election, God's choosing is dependent on God's will and not on man. Now, we've already seen that in uh, earlier passages. So he's reiterating the same same concept. So if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. This tells us there's a, there's a plan. God has purposes. God has established certain things. And I would say before God even created, he already had a plan with lots of detail for the entire creation. And in scripture, we have that unfolding, the, the history of God dealing with the universe is an unfolding of this great plan that I think began even before God created. And we have hints of that in other passages. But now what is he doing with this plan? He's making certain things known. He's going to make his power known, not only in vessels of wrath to reveal his grace, and his goodness, and his mercy, but even with vessels of wrath, that's verse 22, to make his power known. And this reminds us of what we talked about in some of the passages we looked at concerning Pharaoh. So now he's expanding. 
those plagues. Remember, I went through a discussion concerning what those plagues displayed because that was emphasized in the passage that we were looking at in the prior paragraph. But he's reiterating the same concept here to make something known or to reveal something about God. And one of the things that's revealed, and I'm going to expand upon this some more. This is a good place to kind of complete our study for today. And we can pick up on this because there's a lot more that we can say about this enduring with much patience vessels of wrath. This explains further the hardening of Pharaoh. This also expands how God deals with, I think, the unbeliever in in general. We could start with God's justice, and I've been saying this over and over, but God would be perfectly just had he taken the lives of Adam and Eve and basically finished everything that he was going to do in terms of mankind or start over and recreate a new uh, creation had he so desired. He would have been perfectly just to take the lives of Adam and Eve. But we learn from Genesis 3 a little bit more about a bigger plan that God has for all of humanity. And we have grace. We have the principles of redemption all also in Genesis 3, not only the judgment of Adam and Eve and the serpent, but we also have all of the elements of God's salvation in that passage. You could say the same thing about the Genesis flood. God was perfectly righteous in destroying all of humanity. He would have also been just as righteous had he destroyed the family of Noah. But again, we have an expansion concerning God's justice and God's mercy in terms of saving a family. And you can go through the whole Old Testament and see that concept. God enduring. In fact, there's a fundamental principle that will develop next time concerning the patience of God. In fact, let me get to it and introduce it, and then we'll stop at that point, and I'll develop it more next time. But notice the context here, dealing with uh, vessels of wrath, and we'll have to explain prepared for destruction. You need to keep in mind everything that we've talked about so far, because this is a very uh, troubling statement. It almost gives you the impression, in fact, the ultra-Calvinist uses this passage and other passages to develop the doctrine of double predestination, which I don't think is here. In fact, I don't think it's anywhere in Scripture, but this is one of the passages. It is a strong statement. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The difficult word there, prepared. We'll have to take another look at that and what's going on here. But I think it's preceded by this concept of patience that adds to the idea of some of the things that we talked about already concerning Pharaoh and the whole process of not only Pharaoh, but Pharaoh as a representative of depraved humanity. So he's going to introduce a theological difficulty, not just a grammatical difficulty. And think about this, and I'll expand this next week. But I want to talk about what we can see throughout Scripture. Even in the millennial kingdom, you see little hints of one of the ways that God works. 
and we see the cycles of sin, and you see this throughout world history. You see it in in the history of Israel, and and by the way, you can see it in the history of the church as well. In terms of one of the concepts of depravity are these cycles of sin. And very quickly, I won't expand upon them until we get to them next week. But we always see God beginning with a work of grace in every period of time, every dispensation. God works a work of grace. But because of sin and the nature of sin, sin begins its corrupting effects And this is going to be brought out in this passage as well. But thirdly, God patiently endures sin. That's what's in view in this passage. He allows sin to reach its full corruption. And you see entire ages where God is enduring. And we're in a different age where God is enduring sin to reach its full corruption. This was evident in the time of the children of Israel, and it'll even be evident in another time. And then God intervenes to judge and to save. Cycles of sin, then the cycle repeats itself. The salvation aspect of God's intervention is by God's grace, because he could judge and wipe out everyone at every stage. Those are the cycles of sin. Does that Makes sense? We'll expand upon it and we'll talk some more about it in the context of Romans 9.22. Any comments before we have a closing prayer and a closing thought? Could you maybe show the Potter slide? I didn't get the Jeremiah verse on the last uh, item. Jeremiah 18.1 through 10. Jeremiah 18.1 through 10. Any other... uh, so that was the same reference as on the first yes, one on yes, history. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Well, actually, that last slide was 6 through 10. 6 through 10. It was just the last part of the Jeremiah passage. Okay. Any other comments? Closing thought. God is sovereign in executing all aspects of his eternal plan. And this passage is bringing out some of those negative aspects where he's sovereign in terms of even the unbeliever. And even though it introduces some hard statements that are sometimes difficult for us to understand, but we as the clay don't have any even right to answer, but God gives us some answers that should be satisfying. And the main one is that he is sovereign. Who wants to close for us today? Thank you, Heavenly Father, that... uh that you have a plan, Father, we thank you and we praise you that we are even included in your plan, that you have made provision for us, that you have not just left us for destruction, but that you did choose us. And, uh, Father, thank you that your word also says that you are willing that none should perish, that you have always given opportunity to repent. Your word says again and again, but they did not call upon you. So, Father, let us remember that uh, we are not good people, that we are totally dependent upon your grace, your mercy, the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives, and let us participate with you 
as you work to transform us into vessels that are fit for your kingdom. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Any goodbyes before we, uh, there we go. Yep, there's one. See you later, Ray. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.